Hey, Faye, are you reading this morning? Scripture reading today. Can you rise to the reading of God's word from Acts chapter 13? Good morning. We're going to start in chapter 12 on the last uh, verse on there. And Herod had just passed away. So when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Chapter 13. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Samalus, Salamis, sorry, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. When Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind. And for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him. And he groped about, seeking someone to lead them from the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. May these words be added to your hearts. Please sit. You can pray for me as I speak this morning. Uh, I'm pretty weak. In terms of coughing and voices and things like that. But nonetheless, hear the teaching of the Word of God. Uh, This is part two of a message we began last week, a message I've called Word and Spirit. And we briefly considered the first few verses of Acts 13 last week, and we saw there, for the first time in Acts, that the church became a sending church. Up until the end of chapter 12, the Christians in Acts had preached where they were. 
If persecution scattered them, they took their faith with them and preached the gospel wherever they ended up. And so the gospel of Jesus spread and the church grew from Jerusalem to Samaria, even as far as Antioch. But it's not until Acts 13, verses 1 to 3, that the church proactively sends people out. Instead of preaching wherever they happen to be, Christians are now commissioned to go where they wouldn't otherwise be. And at Acts 13, the church becomes, for the first time, a missionary church. And it changed the world. And we noticed last week that this shift happened while the church, while the church in Antioch, or at the very least the church's elders, prophets and leaders, were worshiping Jesus. In their life and prayer centered on Jesus, the Holy Spirit spoke to the church concerning Saul and Barnabas, and the two were commissioned and prayed for and sent off. And when the church is fixated on Jesus, the Holy Spirit speaks, and the church hears and obeys. Excuse me. And missionaries are sent forth. And when that happens, to be sent by the church, verse 3, or to be sent by the Holy Spirit, verse 4, is the same thing. That the Holy Spirit sends via or through the church. And so begins the first ever recorded missionary journey. Barnabas and Saul are sent out. They sail to Cyprus, which is an island about 150 kilometers off the Mediterranean coast. And also, by the way, Barnabas is home. Now, when they go out to do the work for which they have been set apart by the Holy Spirit and commissioned by the church, what is it that they do? Verse 5, they arrive at Salamis and they proclaim the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. And from there, they make their way across the island with John Mark as their assistant. We'll hear more of him next week. They proclaim the word of God. It's interesting that their evangelistic ministry was a ministry of proclamation. Before this, wherever the church happened to be scattered, they went preaching the word. And now, when they take initiative to proactively send out, they go to go from the church and into the world, they preach the word. Later in verse 7, on the other end of the island, the proconsul of the island summons Barnabas and Saul because he wants to hear the word of God. And I don't know if you noticed, but at the end of the passage, after this, this power encounter between two spiritual realities and a miracle that happens before his very eyes, the proconsul is astonished, not at the miracle, but at the teaching of the Lord. Now, proclaiming the word here does not mean preaching some sermons from the scripture. Proclamation here is declaring what God had done in the event that was Jesus' life. Birth, ministry, death, resurrection, ascension. It was an announcement that something had happened. And we know what that proclamation was because in the book of Acts, we have several places where that proclamation of the word was summed up and recorded. Acts 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 10 and the next part of 13, which we'll look at next week. And so we know that this is what they proclaimed. That Jesus of Nazareth was crucified and raised to life in accordance with the Old Testament prophecies. 
that Jesus is Lord and judge and Savior and Son of God, and that forgiveness of sin is available only in him, and that the only right response is to believe, which means repentance and obedience. This is the word of God that they proclaimed. And in fact, the whole Bible is the word of God. For the Old Testament anticipates what God will do in Jesus, and the New Testament unpacks what God has done in Jesus. And the ministry of the church has always been, or at least has been when the church is at its best and most effective, has always been the ministry of the word. And that does not preclude, of course, social gospel, the caring for the poor. But what we don't want to be doing is merely, merely helping people to feel better as they live separate from God. don't want to implement comfort measures on the road to hell. The context for all the ministry of the church is the reality that Jesus, God's son, has died for sin, risen, that he reigns, and that he is the place where forgiveness of sin and relationship with God happen. And so, yes, we show the loving character of God when we love others in his name. We demonstrate the fullness of life in Christ when we live out our faith practically. But in some way, as we do that, we proclaim the word. We tell the truth. We speak of Jesus. I want to show you how this proclamation of the word plays out in Acts. And this will be a little bit rapid fire. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches. He calls them, in verse 22, to hear these words. Verse 37, when his audience heard this, they were cut to the heart. Verse 40, with many other words he bore witness, and those who received his word were baptized. And so receiving the word becomes a bit of a synonym for becoming a Christian, becoming a follower of Jesus. And we'll see that again in a moment. In a moment. Uh, chapter 3, a miracle draws a crowd, and so Peter addressed the people. And of that address, of that sermon, chapter 4 says that many of those who heard the word believed. And after the threat of persecution at the end of chapter 4, this is what the disciples pray to God. Grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, which they do, verse 31. And then again, verse 33. And so with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Chapter 5, after they're being imprisoned and released, an angel tells them, go and speak to the people all of the words of this life. And so they enter the temple at daybreak and began to teach. On their rearrest, they are accused of filling Jerusalem with their teaching. They're flogged, but on their release, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Chapter 6, the apostles refused to be deterred from their, uh, deterred from their primary calling of prayer and the ministry of the word. And so the word of the Lord continued to increase. Chapter 6, verse 7. Chapter 8, they're scattered by persecution, and those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip goes to Samaria and has a ministry of preaching and miracles. And when the Samaritans believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. And the apostles in Jerusalem hear that Samaria has received the word of God. 
There's that phrase again. And Peter and John then go down to Samaria, and when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they return preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Later, Philip tells the Ethiopian official the good news about Jesus. And the man believes and is baptized. And then Philip goes on his way and preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Saul of Tarsus, chapter 9, the great persecutor of the church, has an encounter with Jesus, gets radically saved, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the son of God. And then later in Jerusalem, he preached boldly in the name of the Lord. Now you get the idea, we're only a third of the way through the book. But this thread continues unabated throughout the whole book of Acts. The ministry of the church was a ministry of proclamation. There were many miracles in the the powerful witness of their life together. But it all served their proclamation of Jesus. And when people became Christians, it was through the proclamation, the teaching, the announcing of the gospel. And I wonder if we, in our age where the visual image seems to displace the written word, do we believe in the centrality and the sufficiency of the Bible's testimony concerning Jesus. That it is the word of God that builds Christians up in faith. 2 Timothy 3, that the scripture is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. Do we believe that the Bible itself is an effective means of evangelism? Or do we think that People aren't ready for the word of God until a little later. But the book of James says that the word, the scripture, is able to save your souls. James 1.21. Peter writes that you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. It's 1 Peter chapter 1. Paul said that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Do we believe in our day anymore that the word of God is living and active? That it stands forever? That the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes? In other words, do we believe that God's word is able to save sinners and grow Christians? Or do we believe that people aren't ready for the word? Let me put a plug in here. This Tuesday evening, for six weeks, we're beginning a study of the Psalms. It's not a taught study. It's not a lesson. No preparation is necessary. We're going to gather. We're going to open the scripture. We're going to read the Psalms and talk about it. We'll ask some questions of the text together. What does it say about God? How does this point to Jesus? What does it say about us? How do I apply my life to this truth? So anyone is invited, a number of people I already know are going to come to show up here at 7.30 on Tuesday. Because if you want to deepen your faith, if you want to grow in the worship and the service of Jesus, there is power and sufficiency in the word of God. That's why the reading of the word and the teaching of the word has been and is now such a vital part of corporate worship in the life of churches. 
So Saul and Barnabas, their ministry, they proclaimed the word, as did the whole early church. And throughout the book of Acts, the church grew in, in its size and in its impact as the word of God was preached. Now, Barnabas and Saul's whole ministry in Cyprus is summarized in Luke's short phrase, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos. We don't know anything about the impact of their preaching tour, how long it took. But Luke takes us right to an event at the end of their island ministry because in his selection of material to tell the story of the advance of the gospel, there is something here that is a key part of the story. In verses 6 to 12, there's the account of the conversion of the proconsul or the governor of the island, a man named Sergius Paulus. But Luke begins the account by focusing on a different character. So what he says, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul. And it's this sorcerer, not the proconsul, who is the center of this episode. And what happens is this. Sergius Paulus, the governor, here described as a man of intelligence, summons Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear from them the word of the Lord. That is, he intentionally and apparently with genuine interest wanted to hear what Barnabas and Saul were proclaiming concerning Jesus. Okay, He's intelligent. He wants to know. But Bar-Jesus, which means son of salvation, also called Elimas, or the magician, he actively steps in and tries to influence the proconsul, not just against Barnabas and Saul, but against the faith. He wants to keep the proconsul from the truth. And if there's any doubt that up to now there is a spiritual dynamic at play here, Saul immediately faces Bargesus or Elimas and exposes the spiritual forces at play. Saul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stares Bargesus down and says essentially, Son of salvation, you are a son of the devil. You are the enemy of all righteousness. You are full of deceit and trickery. And you are seeking to make crooked or to confuse or to obscure the plain truth about God in Christ Jesus. Saul essentially calls him out, exposes what is really going on. And there's no doubt that in this text, again, what we're seeing for the first time in Acts, the first explicit or unveiled spiritual battle that the proclamation of the word of God always provokes. See, where the church listens to the spirit and sends people out to proclaim the word of God concerning Jesus Christ, there is guaranteed spiritual opposition. There is guaranteed a battle. There are real spiritual personal forces whose aim it is to keep people from God. And if Christians start proclaiming that in Jesus people can be forgiven and reconciled to God, the devil and his forces will step in and oppose it with violence if they need to, with deceit always. And it's not because the spiritual forces, by the way, hate us. They don't. They don't give a rip about us. They hate God. 
And since God is glorified when people come to him through Christ, and when God changes them and makes them new, Satan and his team will bend over backward to prevent that. And people just become pawns in the game. Know this. When a church sends people into the world to proclaim Jesus, there will be opposition. But know this too. Jesus, in Matthew 28, when he commissioned his followers to go into the world and make disciples, he bracketed that commission with these statements. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And behold, I am with you always. A church on mission for Jesus is a church in a battle. But the great power is ours. When I read this account in Acts, it reminded me of the battle between David and Goliath. When David declares to Goliath, in essence, you come at me with a sword and a spear, but I come in the name of the Lord, and he will deliver you into my hand so that everyone may know that there is a God in Israel. It's kind of what Saul is doing. You, bar Jesus, you are the enemy of truth, and I am here to proclaim to you the true word of God concerning Jesus Christ. And so that everyone may know that there is a God in Israel, so that everyone may know which is the great power. Quote, behold, the hand of the Lord, that is Jesus, is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately, this happens. Elimus, Elimus is blinded, and everyone there in the room knows it. And by this demonstration of spiritual power, the spirit behind Elimas is proved inferior, defenseless against the spirit that is at work in Saul. It's not, by the way, incidental to the story that Luke says that Saul is filled with the spirit. This story is all about the spiritual. And Saul's victory here gives evidence that his proclamation of the word of God was right, that it was true. And so when the proconsul sees Elimas go blind at Saul's word, he is amazed, but not merely amazed at the spiritual power, but at the teaching about the Lord. And that's what the miracles and acts of power always did. That's what they were designed to do. Jesus did miracles all the time. He was healing people left and right. But he didn't only do it for the sake of healing, though he certainly did act from love and compassion and care. But Acts 2 verse 22 explicitly tells us that it was by these mighty works and wonders and signs that Jesus was attested to the people by God. In other words, they were God's way of saying, Jesus is my man, my hand is on him. These things that he is doing proves who he is and that what he is saying is right. By healing the paralyzed man in Mark chapter 2, Jesus demonstrated his ability and authority to forgive sins. Paul in 2 Corinthians says that his preaching was not with eloquence, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. In other words, the Spirit was present and did things when Paul preached so that the people would know that Paul's proclamation of the word was true. It wasn't Paul's 
power of oratory and rhetoric, his ability to persuade, he spoke the truth and the spirit showed up. And so people knew that the word was true. The miracles, the, the healings, this judgment of Elymas, they never stood alone, but they always served the proclamation of Jesus. That's one of the reasons I take such issue theologically with people who claim healing, as if healing was a standalone benefit of being a Christian. God heals, yes, but we don't presume on it, and it always happens in such a way as to serve the advance of the proclamation of the word of God concerning Jesus Christ. Always. Always. So when Saul and Barnabas went about proclaiming the word, and when Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, heard the word of God, the word that Jesus, God's son, had come, bringing the kingdom of God, effecting forgiveness by dying and rising again, Sergius Paulus got to see the kingdom of God. That is, the outworking of the authority of Jesus by his agent, Saul, over the power of the devil by his agent, Elimas. And so he was astonished and he believed. And so again, astonished not just at the facts, but at the teaching, because he saw it worked out in action, that the Jewish rabbi Jesus is alive and is powerful. When's the last time you were astonished at the teaching of the Lord? When was the last time that you believed and trusted and got to be amazed at the reality that Jesus has power? Do you believe that the power of the gospel of Jesus is greater than your fear of the future? Do you believe that the power of the gospel of Jesus is greater than whatever it is that has set up barriers in your relationships. That is greater than your guilt over the past. That it's greater than your worry over current decisions. Have you given yourself an opportunity to see that the word of God itself, and not just Christian material, that the word of God itself has the power to grow you, to foster community, in your life groups, in the congregation, that it has the power to save the souls of people. Here's an idea for you. Do you want to witness to your friend or your coworker? Why not ask if they'd be interested in just reading the Bible and talking about it, reading it together and talking about it together once a week for two months? Do you want accountability and discipleship? Do you want to grow with somebody? Why not read the, phone, read, the, read the Bible together by phone or over coffee for six weeks or six months? Read through Colossians. Read through sections of Luke. Read through Genesis. And talk about it and be amazed at what the word of God has the power to do. And who knows but that we may even find that with the proclamation of Jesus and the word of God, we will see healing and other demonstrations of the Spirit's power so that others, too, will be astonished and believe. We are the Acts 13 Antioch community. 
from a place of the worship of Jesus, where the Spirit sends us out into the world to do the work to which we are called, to proclaim Jesus from the word of God. But there will be opposition, and you can count on it. We are a people who exist, we say, to know Christ and to make him known. And both halves of that statement are word of God centered. Do you want to know Jesus? Do you not know him and you want to know him? Do you know him and you want to know him more? It's the word of God. It's the word of God above all other things that will foster that. Do we want to effectively make Jesus known? It is the word of God by which we will do that. And we will do other things, but they will back up the message of the gospel. Nobody will come to faith because you give them a glass of water and they're thirsty. Somebody may come to faith because you give them a glass of water when they're thirsty and you say, I'm doing this in the name of Jesus. He loves you and so I love you and if you have a thirst in your soul, let me direct you to the water, the living water. That's when people come to faith. You proclaim and we act accordingly. We know Christ and we make him known. It is all about these three words all start with W. Worship centered on Christ. Witness making Christ known. And word the word of God is where it starts. And when we have the word of God written, inspired by the spirit of God, when we proclaim it and the spirit shows up and demonstrates it, we will be the church. And the kingdom of God will, will grow, but there will be impact Orphanages begun, co-workers saved, Christian homes built firm upon the Savior. It's the kind of church we want to be. It's the kind of person I want to be. And I hope that you do. I hope that you do too. Let's pray. Holy Spirit of God, you who testify to Christ and who inspired the sacred writings by which the character of God and what he has done and is doing in Christ is made known to us. We thank you for the word that you have given to us. We thank you that it is a living and an active and a powerful word. We thank you that you are a living and a holy spirit. And we ask for your help in regrounding and re-trusting and maybe believing anew again 
the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that you will draw us into the word. That you will help us to live according to the word. And that as we do that, you yourself will show up and bring conviction of the truth to all who hear and see. Cleanse us from our sin. Convict us of the need to worship. And may your holy word have great power in our lives. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.